20 years after the North American Free Trade Agreement was ratified, is corporate globalization an inevitable fact of life? What options are available for revoking NAFTA and stopping new agreements like the Canada-EU Free Trade Agreement and the Trans-Pacific Partnership? How important is restoring the Bank of Canada to its previous status as principal government lender for Canadian sovereignty? Who is Delmart Vreeland, and what questions did he provoke about 9-11 and the war on terrorism? And what prospects are there for progressive change in 21st century Canada, given the current political dynamic? On this week's program, we spend the entire hour discussing these questions with past guest, Canadian constitutional lawyer, Rocco Galati. On today's program, The People's Fighter. Rocco Galati on globalization, sovereignty, and civil liberties. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of January 31st, 2014. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. We seek to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major stories shaping our world today, from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. Our show is also broadcast on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We'll begin our show with news notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. An editorial in the Financial Times last week, entitled End Drift to War in the East China Sea, highlighted the growing alarm in ruling circles about the prospect of a conflict between Japan and China. The immediate source of tensions is the territorial dispute over rocky outcrops in the East China Sea, known as Senkaku in Japan and Dayu in China. However, the chief responsibility for inflaming this dangerous flashpoint, along with others throughout the region, lies with the Obama administration's pivot to Asia, a strategy aimed at isolating China economically and diplomatically and encircling it militarily. Under Obama, the U.S. has encouraged allies such as Japan and the Philippines to take a more assertive stance in their disputes with China, begun to rebalance 60% of U.S. air and naval forces to the Indo-Pacific, and is establishing new basing arrangements with Australia and other Asia-Pacific countries as part of its war preparations. In Japan, the U.S. pivot has helped foster the emergence of the right-wing Abe government that, in the space of a year, has increased military spending for the first time in a decade and moved to end constitutional restrictions on the Japanese armed forces. That's from the article, The Danger of War in Asia, by Peter Simmons, posted January 29th, originally published on the World Socialist website. There are at present five distinct war theaters in the Middle East Central Asian region, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iraq, Palestine, Libya, and Syria. 
An all-out military attack on Syria would lead to the integration of these separate war theaters, eventually leading towards a broader Middle East-Central Asian war, engulfing an entire region from North Africa and the Mediterranean to Afghanistan, Pakistan, and China's western frontier. The 2000 Project for the New American Century, PNAC, first formulated by the neocons, was predicated on waging a war without borders. The PNAC's declared objectives were to, quote, fight and decisively win multiple simultaneous major theater wars in different regions of the world, as well as perform the so-called military constabulary duties associated with shaping the security environment in critical regions, unquote. Global constabulary implies a worldwide process of military policing and interventionism, including covert operations and regime change, all of which are carried out in accordance with a humanitarian mandate. That's from the article Imperial Conquest, America's Long War Against Humanity by Michel Chosodovsky, posted January 29th, based on text presented at the Rosa Luxemburg Conference in Berlin, January 11th. The key to fighting the austerity agenda for the universities will be our ability to remake campus politics from below to challenge the restructuring from above. This cannot be done simply by defending the way things were in some imagined golden age of the university. Rather, it will be done by building campus coalitions for democratic, accessible, and decolonized education built around good jobs and equity-oriented employment practices. Quebec students during the 2012 mobilization raised important visions of a more democratic and accessible education with very different models of governance and learning. The racist and colonialist perspectives that are hardwired even into the definitions of knowledge that apply on campuses need to be challenged and remade. That's from the article, Austerity U, Preparing University and College Students for Precarious Lives, from Alan Sears and James Cairns, posted January 29th, originally appearing on the Socialist Project website. For more than four years, the Fed has buoyed stock prices and increased corporate margins through massive injections of free cash into the financial markets. Now, the central bank wants to change the policy and ease its foot off the gas pedal. That's causing investors to rethink their positions and take more money off the table. What started as a sell-off in emerging markets could snowball into a broader panic that could wipe out the gains of the last four years. The Federal Reserve is entirely responsible for this new wave of financial instability. That's from the article, Is This the Big One? The New Wave of Financial Instability, by Michael Whitney, posted January 29th, originally appearing on Information Clearinghouse. On September 8, 2013, the popular Russia Today Truth Seeker program, with over a million subscribers on YouTube, published a 13-minute newscast entitled The Truth Seeker, 9-11 and Operation Gladio. The Truth Seeker video immediately started to gain popularity on YouTube, reaching 131,000 views in the first three days. A Mox News copy of the same newscast was also posted September 8th under the title Russia Today, News Declares, 9-11 and Inside Job False Flag Attack 
which in turn started to escalate with over 80,000 views in the first few days. In both the RT and Mox News cases, the viewer statistics on YouTube suddenly flatlined on the morning of September 11th, like a heart monitor when a patient dies. The bottom line is that at least with regard to the Google and YouTube, which is owned by Google, search engines, something highly unusual has gone awry. That is from the article, Search Engine Manipulation, Google and YouTube Suppress Controversial 9-11 Truth, by Elizabeth Woodworth, posted January 30th. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu. Rocco Galati is a Toronto-based constitutional lawyer who has overseen numerous controversial cases. He has a penchant for taking on cases no one else will. For the remainder of the hour, we will feature Mr. Galati and his views on a number of subjects. We decided to have Galati come to the studio and address the legacy of NAFTA, a trade deal like its descendants, which he believes is unconstitutional. So, uh, right now I'm speaking with uh, constitu- Toronto-based constitutional lawyer Rocco Galati, and uh, he's been uh, um, received a, a lot of attention, uh, including uh, an article uh, from the Toronto Star noting he was a, uh, one of those lawyers that will take on those cases that others will not. So, uh, Rocco, I know you've uh, taken on a lot of very interesting cases over the course of your career. Um, I, I know that, uh, just to, to begin, uh, since we're coming up on the uh, 20th anniversary of the uh, ratification of NAFTA, the North American Free Trade right. Agreement, um, I uh, understand you're going to be involved in, in an action that's, or involved in a legal case that challenges, or have uh, over the course of your career, uh, challenge the, uh, the, leg- the constitutionality of some of these free trade agreements? Yeah, well, I, I, I've, for clients out west in uh, British Columbia, I've twice gone as far as seeking leave to the Supreme Court of Canada, challenging, first of all, the MAI, the MAI back in 97, the Multilateral Agreement on Investment. And then in 2001 with the G8 in Quebec City, we were challenging the free trade on the Americas. Uh, and yeah, there, there's there's still a pressing unresolved, various unresolved constitutional issues around free trade agreements in Canada. Uh, in the states, they cannot implement a treaty without Congress passing, passing it through Congress. In Europe, any trade accord for the European Union has to pass the European Parliament. In Canada, we pretend and fantasize and... and uh, continue to invoke the crown prerogative of the executive to sign treaties. Now, when Canada was not a country, treaties could only be signed in London on our behalf. When, after 1937, Canada got its own treaty-making power, and so the, the power devolved from Her Majesty down to the, uh, to, through the Governor General and the, uh, the Canadian executive. So basically, the Canadian executive essentially... 
advises the governor general? No, the Canadian executive signs a treaty which binds Canada vis-a-vis the other countries, even though it may not be enforceable in Canada. So to give you an example, uh, typically what they'll do is they'll sign a treaty uh, granting corporations certain rights, then the corporations try to exercise those rights, and they say, well, you can't do this. This is provincial jurisdiction, this, or this impacts on native rights. And so the, those companies who can't exercise their rights under the treaty have to be compensated by the Canadian government, which is problematic. So in 1997 and 2001, we went to court saying, look, there is no crown prerogative left after the 1982 patriation of the Constitution. Therefore, any treaty that has to be implemented domestically should have parliamentary approval before the treaty has any effect to ensure that it's reviewed for constitutional conformity. And so in 1997, what happened was that the Mai was not signed in Paris. By the time we got to court, the government was, was arguing that this issue of the extinguishing a crown prerogative was a frivolous issue. The federal court disagreed, said it was a serious issue, but they weren't going to deal with the case because since we didn't sign the treaty, the court felt that the issue was moot and to await another day when it's not moot. So we will likely, you can anticipate, in all likelihood there will be a challenge to the Canada-European Accord and we're we're going to also challenge the existing provisions of NAFTA, uh, some of them as unconstitutional. You know, this is not a new debate. This issue of giving corporations extraterritorial uh, existence, believe it or not, goes back to 1607 in a case called Sutton's Hospital in England where they tried to give a corporation extraterritorial uh, existence and the court said, are you out of your mind? Uh, This was also proposed in Adam Smith's day and Adam Smith said, You're out of, you, mu- you must be insane. Corporations are supposed to serve us domestically. They're not su- supposed to take on a life whereby we're subjected to their authority. And this is what's happened. And the last time this... So this what you're ar- sorry, you're, you're, what you're arguing, I th- you'd say extraterritorial jurisdiction? Well, that well, was well, essentially talking, that's what these free trade agreements essentially well, do, is give more power to corporations. Well, uh, not just more power. They override constitutional frameworks. So they give a corporation more authority than the government that signed on to the treaty. So they give a corporation... in essence, the right to override our constitutional framework. Well, the government doesn't have the right to override the constitutional framework. So what the executive, what Harper or whatever prime minister in power is doing when they sign a treaty that effectively overrides our constitution is that they are engaging in unconstitutional action. I don't think that they would overtly say, though, that they are uh, that they're they're giving corporations uh, more power over the constitution. Sure they do. But that, that is the reality. Well, no, they, they do say that. So anytime you give a corporation... Over the Constitution? Well, anytime you give a corporation rights over provincial jurisdiction and you're the federal government signing and you don't have the right to sign off provincial jurisdiction and that corporation has the right to go not to a Canadian court to adjudicate that dispute but to an international tribunal set up under the treaty... Well, you've overridden the Constitution. Nobody denies that. Could you just give us like a specific instance, an example okay. of what you're talking about so that pe- our listeners can understand that uh, this uh, jurisdictional uh, supremacy is, is being undermined? Well, so I'll give you a, a perfect example that, uh, that may p- hit people literally at home. The post office. 
Okay, so for years, Purolator and FedEx have complained that Canada has a subsidized post office. Well, surprise, surprise, under our Constitution, the federal government is mandated and required to maintain a post office. So they claim that that constitutes an, uh, an indefensible subsidy under the trade accords, and they want compensation, Okay, for instance. So that overrides the Constitution. We may see the shutdown of the post office unless we challenge it in court. Uh, and that's from pressure from these courier companies. Uh, certain mining, for instance, you know, they want to go do fracking on somebody else's property and they can't. Well, that company gets compensated by our t federal tax dollars because they can't go and, and, and engage in the fracking operations. On and on. It goes right across. Or they want to cut down timber on native land and they're stopped or they're not, they're, they're, they're not allowed. Well, they, we have to compensate them for the loss of profits. I mean, it's ludicrous. It's insane. Now, some people go as far as to say that when the government signs these treaties, knowingly breaching constitutional provisions, they're engaging in a form of treason. Mm -hmm. And although I don't maintain that, I, I can see how that view is reasonable. Mm -hmm. So when we have uh, these situations where the, the federal government is, is paying, giving money to these, I mean, they essentially have blocked the, the these... Uh, corporations, but uh, may maybe the out is that well they're getting this money and from the government, right? And and so right. in effect it, it isn't really a breach; it's just a sort of a subversion. But well, and then if you really want to be if you really want to be cynical, and you see that the number of corporations running the world is very few, it's the same people giving money to the same people. This is where the real offensive uh, conduct is being engaged in. You know, the same lobby groups that lobby for these treaties and the same political parties who are beholden to them are giving away the family store to their friends, in essence. Mm -hmm. uh, this is why a, a country can only be regulated by constitutional dictates. This is why a country can only be regulated by the insistence of a rigid application of the Constitution whereby neither the executive nor parliament, for that matter, exceed their jurisdiction because at the end of the day you know the executive parliament they're not robots they're not machines they are human beings and as the cone brothers uh, poetically put it in the remake of homer's odyssey in brother where art thou the law is a human institution and all human institutions can be corrupted and the only way you try to put a, 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 a temperance on that corruption is through articulated constitutional non-negotiable rules unless they're negotiated in public not by signing secret trade deals with people who are in essence friends to your own interests mm. this is the problem mm. so uh, how have we we gone through this this evolution i mean it seems like we've uh, like it seems as if there, there's some progressive changes brought about in the early post-war years but then when you get into the the 70s and then the 80s then well, there's the, this more of this uh, this this corporatization happening uh, and not not just at the among the the representatives but also within the executive well the watershed mark was 1971 in 1971 there was another milestone event to this discourse on how far can a corporation go the world court in 1971 rejected the idea that a corporation should have transcontinental existence and it was after 71 that you saw this entire movement and lobby on behalf of corporations to move to these international bodies 
all right? And so you had the Bank of, uh, the, uh, Bank of International Settlement in 74 in Basel, Switzerland, to deal with the financial sector. You had the various uh, free trade accords. See, when they set up the European Union in the 50s, it was very limited. They wanted to do the same thing in North America, but uh, the North Americans said to the Europeans, we're too individualistic. Nobody will go for that kind of free trade accord, so we have to do it sectorially. So we started with the auto trade pact, and then we went to other industries, and finally we, we, went, we got to the NAFTA. The NAFTA was the first big one. And then they tried to do the mother load with the MAI. Uh, so, and then the, you know, you've got the uh, World Trade Organization. But mm -hmm. this has been a very... We go from the 1600s to 1971. It was always rejected because everybody who, who was sober knew the dangers of allowing corporations to rule because then they were under no one's jurisdiction. And that's, what we're, that's the situation that we're in now. We're really at the precipice of that. Uh, and corporations take over. Our governments become irrelevant. We're getting to that. And it's easy to do because the line between the corporations and the governments is not as separate as some people fantasize it is. It's the same people. Mm -hmm. I'm just going back to that, that case, uh, the MAI, uh, Mutual yeah. uh, Agreement on Investment. Uh, yeah, it's a multilateral what, uh, agreement on investment. Yeah. yeah. Am I to understand that essentially it's this, uh, this, the fact that uh, Canada is, cannot legally or it, that, that challenging the, the legal, legality of Canada's ability to sign this treatment given that uh, crown executive privilege, crown which, yeah. which doesn't exist after 1982. Is that really the, the linchpin to, to preventing this thing from going forward? Because I think that the, the common theme that I tend to hear from uh, conventional activists is that there was a lot of protests and resistance, and then the, the French kind of just backed off and well, it kind of fell apart. Th that's the procedural linchpin, okay? You say, look... Procedurally, if you want to pass one, one of these accords, it has to go through Parliament. Substantively, that doesn't end the matter. Even Parliament cannot pass a treaty that grants a foreign corporation or even a domestic corporation rights greater than the citizen under the Constitution. Even Parliament cannot grant uh, an override to constitutional provisions. So when I say about crown prerogative, that's a procedural matter and a matter of uh, uh, transparency so that we know what's in these proposed trade deals. If you have to table them in Parliament, then people are put on notice and people can challenge them. Once they're in Parliament, even Parliament can't say to a corporation, yeah, you can go and exploit the oil sands whether Albertans want it or not. Well, that's unconstitutional. It's not up to the federal government to broker those rights away, for instance, or broker away citizens' rights under the Charter. Mm. Right? So, so you're giving non-existing entities, fictions, the right to override your constitution. Well, who has, who has the right to do that? Parliament was not... Uh, Parliament is established by the constitution. It can't override the constitution without a constitutional amendment by the seven or ten provinces. It can't simply give a corporation rights that supersede the constitution the very thing that gives Parliament its existence. What about something like the province of Quebec, which is so, also like they want their sovereignty so supremely, especially with the current government. I mean, here they're being challenged for, for their fracking ban and uh, under NAFTA. Right. You know, uh, what, what would stop them from challenging this on, on those same constitutional grounds? We have the right to... Uh, Nothing would stop them if they yeah. got off their ass and did it. 
But you know, as a, I've been I've been in this game 25 years, and uh, I often see governments are too lazy to get off their ass and do what, the right thing. Our latest example was this uh, Nate on reference. You know, I talked I took a challenge to Justice Nate on taking a seat. Well, you would have thought Quebec, the Quebec Attorney General, would have brought the challenge. They were asleep at the wheel. It was only after I brought the challenge they get they got onto the bandwagon. So again, you're dealing with human beings. You're not dealing with infallible systems that operate the way they should, right? Mm -hmm. You're dealing with a couple of human beings, and human beings are flawed, uh, messy animals, and often they're lazy, and often they're corrupt, and often they're stupid. And so, you know, your your, your society is only going to be as good as the individuals who are vigilant and who care to preserve it or enhance it or to better it. You can't just sit back and say, oh, Surely the government's going to take care of this. No, the government is going to take care of itself. The individuals in the government are going to take care of themselves first. Then they'll worry about you, the citizen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's. Uh, I, I see a lot within the, uh, you know, yes, uh, a lot of activists and uh, you know people who are trying to bring in some form of justice and act in that regard and you know there, there's some efforts to to vote for or, or support opposition candidates and mm -hmm. uh, uh, then there's you know also the the sort of petitions and the, these sort, the sorts of mechanisms and it, it seems as if your your focus is primarily uh, uh, on the uh, that you know legal mechanisms because that that does is, is that kind of like a neutral ground you're where you're you're able to you know Deal, you know, be the the true opposition, if as it were. Well, or? it's it, it's a method of challenging the system. Unfortunately, Michael, what's happened is you mentioned about people putting their energy into opposition parties. If I found one, I join one. You know, I'm sorry, but you know, I worked with the NDP for years in my previous life, and you know, the NDP is no longer in opposition. You know, everybody that's in opposition falls into the trap of then trying to be the, the mainstream. And when the mainstream's a problem, you know, you're losing energy supporting somebody who wants to be the mainstream. And so you're just, you're just, you're just join, joining the contamination. If these opposition parties actually stuck to their principles and uh, stood firm in their principles, they may uh, make a change in the governing government's view on things, but they don't. They're all the, I see no difference between the three major political parties. I do what I can as a constitutional lawyer because if I have a client or if I have a case that has the law on its side, I can go into court and somebody is forced to give me an answer. You know, no amount of protests forces a government to answer. And although people are very cynical about legal challenges, they serve two very important roles. One is often they act as a lightning rod to inform, educate, and rally around an issue. Secondly, often they, they're actually effective in stopping the government. People have to remember that women suffered for over 100 years in being criminalized and jailed and, and, and losing their life for trying to procure abortions. It took a court case to change that law because the, the politicians were unwilling to yeah. give relief to women who needed and wanted to procure abortions. You could say the same about the labor movement, all the, the blood all that the was same. shed there, That's right. or uh, civil rights movement. That's right. I mean, people forget in the States, a lot of those hard-fought battles were won in court, the busing cases, the equal rights cases. Of course, of course, the, 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 the movement on the street was critical and important 
to send a signal. But they're not exclusive. You can engage in both, and people should engage in both. And so when you have a good legal issue to take, it should be taken to court because it's the only time the government actors are forced to come in and answer. Mm. So now we've got all these trade agreements. There's the the, uh, the CETA, the can he, the uh, Comprehensive Economic and Trade Agreement, Canada EU. There's a U.S. EU agreement. There's the Trans Pacific Partnership, and uh, you know, all all these other trade agreements. Uh, are are we? We, we do have this mechanism that's, that's available to us to uh, essentially dismantle them. Well, it, it, we're going to try. I yeah. mean, the CETA, we don't even know what's in the CETA. Think about this. Your government has told you that we have a comprehensive trade agreement with Europe, and we don't know the friggin' details of it. We don't know what's in it. Why not? Well, because this is how this, uh, this, this, this uh, uh, subversive government works. It's a subversive government. Mm-hmm. We should know the details. We should be debating and, ch- and, if we want, challenging this agreement. And now they've promised to release the details, but they haven't. And the Canada-China agreement? Same deal. Mm-hmm. Then we don't know what's in it. What is this? I mean, we've gone back to the Middle Ages. Are we dealing in the realm of kings and queens, making these private concessionary deals with other kings and queens? Or do we live in a constitutional democracy? This is offensive. People should be offended by this. Mm-hmm. Most of all, the so-called opposition parties who seem to go along with the party, you know, take out their Vaseline and bend over. <laughs> you know. I mean, why aren't they saying what, what, what's in the deal? Mm-hmm. Yes. And uh, it doesn't seem as if uh, – well, it, seems, it does seem to me the NDP is saying that we, we need to see the deal before we can say whether we're for it or against it. Oh, but, really? Uh, when did they say that? Um. You no, know, I can't probably point to the exact. They should be statement. bringing down the government over that issue. Yeah, the opposition should call a non-conference motion saying, "If you're signing secret deals that bind all Canadians and all governments, we have no confidence in you. We want an election." That that to me should be an election issue, mm-hmm. yeah. worthy of bringing down the government. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcast out of Winnipeg on campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM and on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We are also podcast on the website, globalresearch.ca. So, Rocco, I um, just wanted to maybe we can um, look at some of the other uh, issues that you've been championing. <laughs> Um, another one that uh, you've uh, pursued uh, is the uh, this uh, the case against the Bank of Canada, right? And uh, that was I mean I interviewed you uh, last year on this issue. Um, this basically idea that uh, the Bank of Canada should be the main lender of choice to the Canadian government. Uh, do you have any? Uh, can you give us some sort of an update or of that um, sure. that situation? Well, you know, that's, you say another issue. That issue is a separate slice of the same stolen pie. Okay, the Bank of Canada was the subject of hard negotiations, we know from insiders on this Canada-Europe accord. Europe wants the Bank of Canada dismantled. It's the only public bank reportable to Parliament in the G8, in the entire so-called Western democratic world. And so the Bank of Canada was created in 1937 primarily as a mechanism to flow to the federal 
provincial and municipal governments interest-free loans of up to one-third of their annual budget for human capital expenditures, that is schools, health, roads, uh, social work, so long as that uh, one-third was paid in the next fiscal year. The Bank of Canada floating interest-free loans to the federal government is the reason why Canada retired its world war debt before anybody else. Some countries are still paying for it. It's the reason we were able to build the Trans-Canada Highway. It's how we built the St. Lawrence Seaway. It's how we built all the universities in the 60s and 70s across the provinces. There was an explosion in the building of universities in Canada. And contrary to the fear-mongering, it never led to inflationary pressures. And so... We, we, we brought in a, a, a challenge in the federal court to force the government to uh, not atrophy the provisions of the Bank of Canada, but to use them for their intended purposes. It, at the first level, it got struck as non-justiciable, which was a ridiculous decision. We appealed that, and I argued the appeal this past December 2013, and we're waiting for uh, judgment on the appeal of that uh, so that it can go forward. Yeah, how long has that wait been going? Ahead? Since December, so we anticipated... December... 2013. Okay. Yeah, so we anticipate a decision in the next couple of months. If we win, I'm sure the government will appeal. It'll probably go to the Supreme Court on the procedural issue of whether or not the action should proceed. Mm-hmm. The government wants to bury it. They don't want to deal with the serious issues contained in so that So they're just going to keep delaying? Well, they'll try, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So, so we we'll just have to be patient yeah. and uh, and uh, and uh, persevere. But it's part of the same. It's part of the same. None of these cases are in and by themselves separate. They they all come back to government abuse of either people's rights and or the constitution. They come back to uh, a slide in the bona fides of the government and how it operates, whether it be the executive or parliament. Uh, and often there's no distinction with this government. The executive is parliament because they simply ram everything through parliament. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah, or beyond that, I mean the, the PMO, the prime minister's office. Right, right. And so it's essentially a kind of, I think, uh, what was called by a uh, man's the name escapes me, a writer for the Globe and Mail, but uh-huh. talked about the, the friendly dictatorship. Well, I've, I've, been, I, I've been calling this, a, as my mother called it uh, before she passed away, a dictatorship with a smile since the Kretchen years. I think since uh, Prime Minister Kretchen took power, this country's been a quiet dictatorship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, so we're, we're talking like we need uh, more checks and balances and, and your, I guess, the, yeah. these legal uh, cases that you're pursuing are efforts to get that, to prod, those checks yeah. and balances in there. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, essentially, they're one way of trying to maintain our rights and our constitutional order. Do you, do you think that the, the, to the, the majority uh, or, or any of our parliamentarians actually understand these issues, that uh, the Bank of Canada can be our lender of choice, uh, uh, or, or are they just sort of in on the game? Well, it's, it's a complicated question. Uh, again, you know, we, we, live, we live in this bizarre situation in society where people assume something, even the courts sometimes. You, you mention the word parliament and sort of trumpets go off and music goes off and you think it's an infallible institution. It's a gathering of individuals. Many of them are, quite frankly, not up to the job. Many of them are stupid. It's a political game that gets them there. It's a corrupt political game that gets them there. And once they get there, they play the game. Who you know and... Uh, what, and yeah. get, getting your votes and all of that. That's our process. So be it. But don't think for a second 
that these men and women that are elected to parliament have any intellectual acumen to deal with some of these issues. They go through the game and they pretend to be smart and they rely on technicians to advise them and often that doesn't work because they're not asking the right questions. The the technicians have their own axe to grind. Some of these MPs are very smart. They have their own agenda. Some of them are corrupt. They have their own agenda. So you're dealing with a very flawed, you're dealing with a very flawed institution that's given all the respect in the world. But on certain issues, the issues are way over their head. These parliamentary committees, in my experience, just don't know what the heck is going on. That uh, brings up another uh, famous case that uh, maybe some many of our listeners might be familiar with but may have been eclipsed over time, and uh, that's the case of uh, one Delmark Freeland, who mm. uh, you represented uh, way yeah. back in 2001. Right. And uh, this was an individual who, uh, had, who was, had been detained, who was to be extradited to the United States. Yes. Um, but uh, he apparently had foreknowledge of the September 11th attacks. That's and correct. Yeah. There is evidence that he had, I mean, he, he tried to relay that information and finally we were able to prove it through uh, putting it into a, having him write it out in an envelope that was sealed well, and before September I, 11th. I didn't have him write out anything. He did that, he did on, that his on, on his own. Yeah, he, ha- he clearly had foreknowledge of 9-11. Our attempts to advise both the American and Canadian government uh, fell on deaf ears, yeah. There was no okay. question. Do you know, like, which officials you tried to to warn? CIA, FBI, RCMP. CSIS, RCMP Intelligence. They actually interview, we interviewed them in, in a jail in my presence, in the presence of my co-counsel at the time. So it was, it was clear. They, it's all over the Internet. It's, it was clear that he, he had foreknowledge and they didn't care to listen to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did he try to reach out to parliamentarians? He was in jail. Oh, the man was a naval intelligence officer in the U.S. Navy. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was no reaching out. I did meet with the, uh, the parliamentary secretary to the solicitor general at the time. Solicitor general did not want to meet with me, even though uh, I, I was told I had a meeting scheduled. Uh, I met with top officials at the RCMP. But anyway, that's all water under the bridge. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, you know, so uh, that's that's left you with uh, any impressions or maybe reinforced existing uh, impressions about the the nature of uh, power well, government well it was a bizarre case yeah you know as a lawyer you rarely get cases like that i've had my fair share of them but uh, you know i'm not a cynic i'm just an optimist with too much experience so you know as shocking as some of the cases are they're in line with what human beings do and this is what but you know this is why the rule of law was established in in a desperate attempt to control our very nature mm-hmm. our corrupt nature as human, as a as a species you know yes i i've i've interviewed uh, individuals uh within the the 911 truth movement who mm-hmm. are who've been active in and trying to get this information raise awareness and try to get a new investigation into 911 uh e- even now and uh, I guess one of the things that, that it seems to me is that, you know, I think the people in positions of, of power, whether or not they're, they're complicit in uh, the actual execution, uh, they, they, they just don't feel they can do anything uh, to, to stop it. Well, no. But they know, right? It's, look, there's two ways of looking at this. There's a, on a political plane and on a personal plane as a species. On a personal emotional plane, this type of betrayal is akin to incest. When you look at incest cases, in 95% of the cases, 
The entire family knows what's going on, yet everybody's in denial. Nobody wants to come forward because the betrayal is so deep and there's something going on there that it's easier to just pretend it didn't happen than having your world fall apart on you. So that happens okay. within justice institutions? That happens within institutions. institutions. On a political level, the only people who care about conspiracies are the people who actually cooked up the conspiracy, right, because they have a vested interest. But others who don't have a vested interest in the conspiracy don't have the wherewithal to unravel it. And so you have that type of mobilization, okay? And so, and, so, and so you get that bizarre dynamic where, you know, we know JFK was not shot by Lee Harvey Oswald, yet time has passed, nobody cares. And I'll give you a perfect example of it. If, if people recall the Birmingham Six in England, the six who were tortured extensively, who, and then they made a movie, and, you know, they were innocent. When that case went through the courts... Lord Denning at the Court of Appeal wrote a judgment in which he said, I cannot believe the allegations that they are innocent and they were tortured by the British authorities to the extent they say they are, because for me to believe that means that the whole world that I have been invested for my whole life is meaningless and falls apart. He says this in this judgment. And so that's the dynamic you're dealing with. For people to admit to the truth means that the world and life as they've known it personally and politically gets dismantled to the ground and they have to move forward from there. For most, for most individuals, unless you're a devout anarchist, that is a daunting uh, reality that most people are not willing to face, which, yeah. is, which is sad. Including a lot of anarchists. I know some mm -hmm. who are yeah, just, you know, you're a conspiracy theorist. Well, they're not know. real anarchists. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do, a do a culling of your friends. <laughs> <laughs> you know? My guest is uh, Rocco Galati. Uh, he is a uh, constitutional lawyer based in Toronto and who's uh, been uh, represented a number of uh, very challenging cases, has made it his passion to uh, uh, challenge uh, government on uh, uh, issues of, of high impropriety. Um, it's not a passion. It's a perceived necessity, by the way. Perceived necessity. It's not that I, you know, I get a perverse joy out of these cases. Yeah. I often hope I d wouldn't have to do a t type of case. Sometimes I hope... You if know, somebody else will take it, go for it? No. I s often say to myself, why are we in a position where I have to go to bat for this client? This should not be happening to this person. Mm -hmm. I, you know, it, 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 it's, it's a context of sadness, frustration, and anger often that forces me to take a case on because the reality is that the person is being abused by society, by the authorities, by the government. It's not that I, oh, a great, another great case of abuse. I'm happy. No, you know. These cases are cases that need to be done because very few of us out there are doing them. Mm -hmm. uh, well, on that subject, let's talk about uh, Abdurrahman Qadr. And that was right. a case in which you famously had to walk away. Right. And a very, must right. have been a very difficult press conference. Right. Because you got a death threat. Do you want to? Well, myself and my, my, my yeah, my, uh, my, I was a single father to, at the time. And uh, uh, it, was, it was made to be known it was a viable, serious institutional threat. 
and I had come to a point where I wasn't willing to put my uh, my, my this was a, uh, yeah, a message on a on your answering machine right, right on your office phone right I was simply getting too close to the truth for some people's uh, liking and you uh, you you brought it to the police yeah the police uh, <laughs> it's funny because the police uh, police uh, refused any protection and uh, I had relatives who were on the police force it was made known to me that the reason they were refusing uh, protection was they knew it was a serious death threat <laughs> if it was a bogus threat they would have posted officers doing triple time <laughs> which is not unusual you know a lot of you know and uh, on a human level you don't blame Mm -hmm. The police for saying, "Well, if this is a real threat, why would I put myself in harm's way?" How did you know that it was uh, an actually a more uh, like not just a from some rogue nobody, but like well, actual well, CIA with, or, or with, with, intelligence? Without getting into details, I I consulted people who were in the know who told me that. Mm -hmm. You're you're not one to easily give up on no. something. No, and, and at the time I said, "We, Colombia has come to Canada." Yes. And, and a lot of people said, oh, that's exaggerated, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it's funny that uh, I often get uh, requests for donations to support lawyers in foreign countries who have their life threatened because of the work they're doing. And I, I sort of chuckle. I say, well, well, welcome to the club, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I'm not saying it's right. I'm just mm -hmm. saying that people in Canada, it's the, it's the, I don't know if you're aware of the 500-mile liberal syndrome. The people in North America get really worked up about injustices so long as they happen 500 miles outside the radius of where they live. Because if it's inside the radius, they just pretend they don't exist. They don't want to deal with them. So nobody in Canada wanted to deal with the fact that a Toronto lawyer was having his life threatened because of the work he was doing. But we'll get excited about foreign lawyers. And we should. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. We should. But there's that denial element. Again, it's the incest syndrome. So I, I, I shouldn't waste my time looking for this exhibit at Winnipeg's Human Rights Museum? No, no, no. They're not sympathetic to a WAP lawyer getting his life threatened in Toronto. You see, that's the other thing about Canada, right? If it's a stinking WAP or Chinese or black lawyer or South Asian lawyer, they're not really lawyers because they're not human. If it were an Anglo lawyer, there would have been a different reaction. You understand? Hmm. The law society would have taken a different position. The Canadian Bar Association would have cared. But since it's a dirty WAP lawyer who's just a pain in the ass anyway, we don't need to care. Wow. He's getting his just desserts. Okay. And people are offended when I say that. But I'm not naive. I live in the society. I know the kind of society I'm living in. Yeah. Yeah. I think maybe people will just argue, well, you're just being you know, sensitive and just playing up that uh, your ethnic background on that. Uh, and I will say to them, maybe so, but it doesn't mean it's not true. Okay. <laughs> Just as Alan You're not paranoid if, if they well, really are coming out to Well, you. as Alan Ginsberg said, or Bob Dylan, they fought over who said it first, but mm -hmm. you know, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean nobody's after you. Do you still get death threats? I mean, like, I know I, that uh, I, uh, whenever you represent uh, these terrorist cases, they talk about you getting like dead cats on your doorstep yeah, and all I've, that kind of I, I, have, I have always gotten death threats. Most of them I dismiss because they're from erratic individuals, and they don't, they're, you know... Uh, a lot of lawyers get those types of threats. Uh, the the only ones that concern me are the institutional ones because they have the the wherewithal and the impunity and the professionalism and the professionalism to to actually you know uh, make it a viable threat and uh, and you know threaten your family. Yeah. Mm. Um, I guess another. Uh Famous uh, case uh, is the the Toronto 18, and uh, you right. represented uh, Ahmad Mustafa Ghani. Yes, 
yeah, and that uh, that's another instance where you had uh, you know, these uh, people who yeah. were essentially um, what's the word? Um, well, they, they basically they, there was, seems to be a, a, an organizational effort well, to, was, to just get to, get get the public worked up about. To that's these another travesty instances. of justice. You know, there are eighteen accused there. I represented one of six, and uh, make no bones about it, we made a lot of noise. The ones who made a lot of noise got a peace bond. The ones who sort of folded over and pled guilty got 18 years to life. That was a political trial. Mm-hmm. That was a political trial, yeah. 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 But uh, certainly it was not uh, – I mean, we were in dealing with individuals who were uh, – I mean, it wasn't as if the, the FBI, through their diligent work, managed to stop this uh, – this, uh, this, this no, plot was, that was going on. I mean, it was being helped by those same intelligence. Uh, that case, uh, mo- mo- most of that case was con- concocted by the police agent. Mm-hmm. It, all the ma- all the evidence was brought in by the police agent, manufactured. They were they were egged on. They were they were delusional teenagers without a life, basically. Very easy to do. But you know, I, ch- I chuckle. I chuckle at that because most of them did less than this white kid who brought a pipe bomb onto the plane the other day from Edmonton. If, they, if that kid had been a Muslim kid, he'd be doing life in prison right now. Mm. And so you see, this we're not really concerned about any war on terror because there isn't a viable one. We're lucky. We're lucky we live in a, a relatively civilized society because if, if, if terrorists wanted to do real damage, they would be doing it and we'd be learning about it later. Mm-hmm. And so it's very dangerous to manufacture threats that aren't there, mm-hmm. you know, be, you know. Uh, you, you have to you have to be, be careful with what you wish for, you know, and uh, and so we're very we're very fortunate, and we should not be artificially manufacturing cases when they don't exist. Mm-hmm. And we keep hearing about how uh, Canada and the United States are, are becoming more and more integrated, that, oh, and it's to the extent that it's uh, the, the, the border is almost gone. Uh, but uh, as coming at it from somebody like we do have a, a constitution right. and, and these. Uh, those sorts of legal protections in there are, are we um, I- is that kind of like the last line of defense against uh, complete integration we, we've been integrated uh, surreptitiously for a while way back uh, in 202 American agents have been operating here now we want to give the green light to Mossad as well and uh, we've been integrated for a while uh, and uh, we'll, we'll wake up to the reality of American uh, enforcement agencies uh, actually uh, conducting operations on our soil. Uh, I'm sure it's going to be constitutionally challenged if ever, anybody's ever charged with anything, but they're already here operating on our streets mm-hmm. with the Canadian government's uh, approval. Yeah, But that could be ch- constitutionally challenged. Of course, but you, you'd have to know. You'd have to have a case, right? Yeah. So until something, some comes to the, yeah, until something comes to the forefront, they're here. We know they're here. You know? mm-hmm. Well, are we seeing like with the you know, recent uh, love-in with uh, Israel, or are we seeing more, like you mentioned, the Mossad, uh, are, are we seeing that integration uh, happening along those lines? Are we sacrificing some of our sovereignty there? Well, that integration was proposed about three, four years ago, and they were moving towards it, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. I don't think any foreign agency should operate under our soil, mm-hmm. you know, including England. Okay. You know, we, we should have control of our own sovereignty and our own streets and our own, uh, you know, accountable to Canadians. We shouldn't have foreign military agents here operating on our soil mm-hmm. with the approval of the Canadian government. That's obscene. Well, what about the, when we have institutions like uh, NORAD and uh, NATO and the, the, the Northern Command? I mean, the, those themselves are 
sur- are, are those uh, formations that uh, can be challenged, or are they? No, but they're they're bilateral. They're bilateral arrangements under a command structure. They're not by bi- you know they're multilateral arrangements under uh, a command structure in which we partake, but they don't domestically do anything. Okay. You know, it's just no, what happens on our soil right, against our own citizens. Right, right. So okay. you can't have agents circulating in our amidst our population, uh, foreign agents. You know that was part of the challenge in Quebec City. I took issue with that. Yeah. American, American, and Mexican and foreign agents armed in Quebec City. And went, this, this, this is this is a breach of sovereignty. This is treasonous. Yeah, that's yeah. Let's let's look at that. Uh, I mean, uh, we we've had those major mobilizations. Uh, there was uh, APEC in '97, yeah. I think it was. Seattle in '99. S- yeah. Seattle in '99. Yeah. Windsor, Washington, and the, of course the big summit of the Americas yeah. in 2001. Right. Uh, you played a very important role in terms of a, the legal case around right. some of the Americas, which had implications for the G20 in Toronto. Right. Uh, right. In 2010, you want to talk about that? Well, unfortunately, we came in at the last minute as interveners a week before the court date because nobody came to the aid of uh, uh, Mr. Tremblay, who was a bankruptcy lawyer who brought the case on his own behalf, but he had no constitutional expertise. So my clients out of Vancouver hired me to intervene. We got intervener status, and we parachuted in. We established the court declared that there was a flagrant violation of constitutional rights and prior restraint, which you can't engage in, uh, and a a flagrant uh, breach in that they had, by police order, sequestered the uh, L'Assemblée Nationale Parliament and the Superior Courts, which you can't do, which I said to the judge at the time, uh, where I come from, they call that a coup d'etat. And he said to me, yeah, but it's only for four days. I said, well, most coups in the 20th century only lasted 24 hours. So so he found the breach, but because it was so close to the summit, he, he, he justified it under Section 1 because we did not have the time to actually make... Uh, logistical arrangements for the protesters to be able to come in within the perimeter and protest. He was willing to do that. We had the, you know, we were looking at ways where we could allow, you know, maybe a thousand or two thousand to get close enough to the leaders to protest. But because it was a massive operation logistically, he, he, he is, the judge essentially said, you know, if you'd come to me eight months ago, you might have had a remedy. So when the G20 happened, they made sure because of that case. They, they had originally planned to hold a lot of the events on the grounds of Queen's Park and University of Toronto, which is all north of the Superior and, uh, and as far south as Osgoode Hall. But they stayed clear of the Parliament buildings. They stayed clear of the Superior Courts. All the G20 happened south of Queen Street where there was no, as I call it, uh, coup action by the, uh, by the uh, police forces. Because if they had sequestered Queen's Park, that would have been... Again, flagrantly, a uh, flagrant violation, or if they had sectioned off the courts, they can't do that by police order. Having said that, you know, I wasn't involved in any of the cases of the arrest, but what they did was absolutely fascist. The conduct they engaged in, in the prior restraint in terms of sequestering and detaining people before the event, and uh, the the agent provocateur tactics that they engaged in where the police were engaging in there, you know, uh, just absolutely fascist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, we could prove that it yeah, was yeah, agent yeah, provocateurs. Yeah, yes, yeah. Just mm-hmm. like in Montebello and just like at the other yeah. summits. Because mm-hmm. they wear a certain footgear and they have uniforms, you know. Uh, I mean, it's just beyond belief that anybody would burn a police car or damage a police car and no police would intervene. 
Yeah. Unless yeah. the police well, were I mean, doing I, that. I was there, and I thought, yeah. well, it's strange, you know, yeah. like they're yeah. uh, standing around and, and letting these guys go. And no, no. I mean, but, but that happened in Montebello. There's a video. You can watch it on YouTube oh, yeah. where, where, where the uh, Well, certainly. Paul Manley took That's that right. footage. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know where the Quebec Superior, Quebec uh, uh, Provincial Court Officer recognizes his own officers. As the vandals and takes their mask off. I mean, come on, those people should be in jail. So I guess lo- looking ahead, you know, we've got all these economic uh, arrangements being uh, put together under this uh, regime here in Canada, mm. with uh, the United States uh, president and all these other world bodies apparently uh, cooperating. Uh, do, do you see any room for hope? Does it lie in the legal world or? Well, no, I think I think I think it lies in individuals uh, acting on their conscience and the consciousness, and the re- having to wake up to the reality that if people don't react and don't withdraw their consent to being governed as a flock of sheep going to the slaughterhouse, in in our lifetime, I'm not that old; I'm 55. But in my lifetime, we will wake up to a very nasty drastic world where the corporations are literally controlling everything and where the the armies of the world are going to be acting on their orders. You know, people have to sort of stop getting engrossed in, in their cell phones, their Facebooks, you know, and wake up to a bit of, uh, you know, physical and political reality of who's pulling their strings on a day-to-day basis and acting accordingly. And the other, the other real danger and the real devastation we will see is in our environment and in our health. You know, as they monopolize more and more and they get rid of all this biodiversity, not just in terms of life and wildlife and environment, but also food, we're going to be wake up to a very sad state. Yeah, everybody's got to eat. Yeah, everybody's got to eat and we'll be eating their processed garbage. And we'll lose a lot of these species, food species, that have been around for tens of thousands of years. Do you, when you look at uh, I guess the current uh, fashion, uh, there's a, a movement called Idle No More, I'm mm-hmm. sure you're familiar with it, where indigenous peoples are rising right. up in, in, in defense of their sovereignty. Right. It's been depicted as like the, the last line of defense to, to protect the land and to protect right. the water. Um, is, is that uh, something that you're looking toward with as a possible... Uh, instance of, of people waking up and uh, yeah, it's, 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 as a as a spark, it's good, but it has to be maintained. It has to be enhanced. It has to be coupled with court action. It has to be supported by non-native uh, Canadians. You know, it can't just a spark is just a spark. If it just fizzles out, then then it becomes even worse because then people lose more hope. Yeah, I I I, I get encouraged at that type of spark, and I hope people pick up on it and it turns into a fire. It's been a, a great uh, conversation. I, I've been very happy to have you in the studio yeah. here in uh, CKUW. And I, ju- I just want, sorry, Michael, I just want to give you some personal advice on your friends. Okay. When people accuse you of being a conspiracy theorist, just remind them that if you're a conspiracy theorist, they must be a coincidence theorist. And coincidences are not a criminal code offense, but conspiracies are because they happen all the time. So anybody who proclaims himself to be an anarchist and dismisses any notion of political conspiracy, is not really an anarchist. (laughs) (laughs) Rocco Galati, constitutional lawyer uh, based in Toronto, a very, very busy guy. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me.
You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can hear our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across the country. We are broadcast on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I am series host and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.